You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Brock, NCQA's Communications Director. We have a very important guest today for you, Dr. Lisa Cooper, a pioneer in closing the gaps that still persist in healthcare. That's in terms of equity. In our discussion with Dr. Cooper, we cover a lot of ground, her incredible research into doctor-patient relationships, how the pandemic exposed long-standing issues inequitable treatment, and a bit about her contribution so far as a newly appointed science advisor to President Biden. Later on, some insights from NCQA President Peggy O'Kane on the relatively new healthcare model known as Hospital at Home. And following that, an update on some of NCQA's newest products as we head into the new year of 2022. Looking forward to that. But first, our talk with Dr. Cooper. We have a great guest to tell you about today and to visit with. Her name is Dr. Lisa Cooper. Lisa A. Cooper. She's an internist, a health services researcher, and a social epidemiologist. We'll tell you more about that coming up. A recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2007, Dr. Cooper pioneered methods of measuring racial and ethnic disparities in the quality of communication and relationships between doctors and patients, and of implementing community-engaged interventions to overcome disparities in health and healthcare. A faculty member at Johns Hopkins since 1994, Dr. Cooper founded the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Equity. You know, we love that at NCQA, bringing together scientific minds from many areas of research with the goal of ending health disparities everywhere. It is her social activism coupled with her clinical and scientific expertise in bridging the gaps in health equity that led to Dr. Cooper's appointment this year to President Biden's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Dr. Cooper, we're thrilled we're honored and thrilled to have here, you here today. Welcome to Inside Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Quite a biography you have there, quite a career you've put together. But early in that sort of reading of your biography, we use the word social epidemiologist. Tell us what, all about that. Tell us about the field and what we can all learn from it. Social epidemiology is a, a relatively new field, uh, although it, you know, it, it, it came out of like the bringing together of several different fields, the social sciences and, and epidemiology, which is a more traditional public health science. And it's really the study of how social conditions um, are distributed in our population and how these actually influence and determine the health of not only individuals, but entire um, societies. So it's really, what's really different about social epidemiology is that it, it aims to not only uh, understand determinants of health on, a, on an individual level, but also on a broader sort of macro level, societal level, neighborhood level. And um, you can use social epidemiology to basically study the effects of these social processes on, on any health outcome, really. 
And then uh, uh, it's very interesting to me because it can be generational, can it? Epidemiology. I mean, it runs from generation to generation, correct? Right. Um, I mean, typically we do want to study the effects of different uh, environmental exposures or, or social conditions on health throughout the lifespan. So not only, you know, for people within, for example, a certain age group, but but what, for example, how do these factors impact on um, infant health? How do they impact on uh, development of children, health in adolescence or young adulthood, and how they impact upon aging and and mortality as well as quality of life? You were the 2007 MacArthur Fellow, um, and and as we said earlier, that's sort of the recipient of the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant for improving the, and this is what I thought was interesting, doctor, improving the quality of medical care for minorities in the United States by analyzing and developing new approaches to patient-physician communication. And this is really about relationships, which is, it seems to me, is hard to quantify. You're right. I mean, a lot of the efforts that have been made to understand um, healthcare delivery or to improve patient outcomes have really focused on technical things, um, such as whether or not people received a certain medication or went for a specific type of medical or surgical procedure, looking to see whether the practice of medicine is is following what we know to be the way they should practice it based on the evidence we have. So, but, you know, the reality is that in order to get those tests done or to go for those procedures, that there has to be some interchange between a health professional and a patient and and their family member in, in many cases. And it's really that interpersonal process that really drives Um, the interaction and drives the decision-making of both parties and therefore really shapes whether or not people end up following through on recommendations or even getting the care they might need. So it's really important for us to not think about healthcare as only something technical, but it's really something that requires a lot of interpersonal interactions. Really, it's like the art of medicine as opposed to simply the science of medicine. You know, we we work in a measurement world. How do you measure the quality of relationships between a doctor and his patients? Do you measure it in uh, compliance or do you measure it another way? Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of indicators of whether or not there is a good interpersonal connection. Right. Um, you know, I think scientists struggled with this for a long time. And, and, and early on, what we used was surveys. We used surveys of patients and of physicians, and we asked them, how did, how did it go? Did you feel like um, the other person was listening to you? Did you feel like you understood what they were saying to you? Um, did they seem to respect you? Uh, did they seem to really know you as an individual? And so we would use those those ratings of care from patients on the interpersonal process. Um, And then, but there was always some concern that, you know, when there are two people interacting together, what actually happened, it's a combination of the perspectives of both people. And it's really probably somewhere in the middle of what each person perceived. And so we actually moved from just asking people their subjective opinion about what happened to actually using direct observations or recordings 
to really capture what was actually said and how it was said and by whom and when. And how that may differ from perceptions. Do you do comparisons? You know, the ratings that patients give to the quality of communication aligns pretty well with objective measures of, uh, you know, other people sort of measuring what they think would be high quality communication. So they they measure up pretty well together. They align well. Uh, but there are some things that we, we capture objectively that, you know, patients might not have realized. For example, in a lot of my work, we documented that doctors verbally dominated the conversation uh, when speaking to all patients, but even more so when speaking to patients of color. And so they really, they talked about 50% more than white patients, and they talked 75% more than black patients. So what does that mean? You know, that if the doctor is verbally dominant means that, you know, they're taking up more airtime in the conversation, meaning that more than likely the patient may not be really getting a chance to tell uh, her full story. Um, patient might not be able to ask all the questions they have. We know how it feels when we're in a conversation um, with another person. It's a back and forth thing. And if one person sort of goes on on a lecture or a litany for a long time, it doesn't really feel like we're in this together. Uh, man, I think this work is very, very interesting. What do you think? Uh, you've been doing it a while. What is what do you think is the biggest sort of light bulb that went off at some point? The biggest thing that sort of moved you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that moved me was that um, that doctors actually weren't really aware that they were sort of dominating these conversations in that way. Um, and so what I realized is that we need feedback. We need to provide feedback to clinicians on how things are going with their practice, whether it's something technical or whether it's something more like sort of interpersonal. So that was one thing that went off for me. And, and you know, the other thing was like basically having having clinicians like realize that they were doing this so that they could actually work to overcome it because that's the first step is awareness, right? If you think you're doing a great job and it's the same thing with health care disparities overall, if we think, well, there are health disparities and health care disparities out there in society, but it's not us because we're not doing that. But if we actually look at our own data and our own performance and we see that we're actually contributing to the problem because we have disparities in the care we deliver, then we can actually address it. But if we don't look at it or don't become aware of it, then there's no way that we can address it. The clinician has reason to think about these things, but the patient maybe not so much, right? Like the patient doesn't leave the office thinking, we didn't communicate well. They're thinking, I don't think he heard me or I'm not sure if this is right. And I think also, and I wanted to ask you about this, there's a cultural thing, and I don't know how it goes sort of ethnically, but there's a culture thing for doctors where we respect them and think they're the all-knowing and all, you know, all omnipotent. And we, you know, as patients, we do what the doctor says, right? Or at least that used to be the case. Is that still a strong? Well, I think that's, I think that has shifted somewhat. I think, you know, the model of healthcare used to be much more what we call paternalistic, you know, it's like you go into the doctor and they know what's best and they tell you what to do and you, you do it and you leave. Well, things have changed because 
we have uh, people that are have access to a lot of medical information now. And there are a lot of people who have uh, doctors and nurses and other health professionals in their family. And so they're not willing to simply be a passive like recipient of care. They actually want to be more actively involved. They want to ask questions about things they've read about. And so I think healthcare has moved, shifted much more to an egalitarian model where, um, you know, you could call it basically some decades ago, it really was this move towards patient centeredness where uh, the medical profession and, you know, nursing other health professionals became aware of sort of the, the centrality of the role of the patient and how care really ought to be sort of organized around and responsive to patients. So I think we've seen more of a shift in that. But they, that, you know, that may not be true for all groups, though. You know, so there might be older individuals, for example, who still sort of subscribe to the more traditional model. There may be people who have less education, who feel less comfortable speaking up and advocating for themselves in those settings. And then we have, you know, people of color, African-Americans who have experienced discrimination in so many settings um, in society who may sort of come into healthcare settings expecting not to be treated well or respected well, and therefore actually um, be more hesitant about speaking up about what it is they need. The pandemic, did the pandemic impact any of this? Did it impact doctor-patient relationships and communication? Has it changed? Well, I, I, I have to believe that it has. I mean, because so much of care has been, you know, face-to-face and in person and has now shifted in large part to this sort of video calls and virtual uh, care, that people aren't actually physically present with each other as, as often. Um, and, and then, you know, really some people, some populations, people didn't have access to the technology to, to have video calls with their physicians. So we had to rely on just audio or telephone. And so, you know, a lot of what we communicate with other people about is not just using words. We use our body language and we look at sort of uh, facial expressions. We look at the, the overall context of where someone is. For example, even if it's a virtual call, you can sort of tell whether there are lots of people around and lots of noise or whether the person seems to be in a comfortable and quiet place. And, you know, I think if you don't have all of that or if the person's just on the phone, it's really hard to capture all of what's going on. So I think communication did shift uh, during the pandemic and it, and like many other things, it was probably worsened for people who already kind of had uh, other challenges, as you can imagine. It, it made the divide wider for some of them probably, or the separation just naturally. Um, and I, 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 not that I'm an expert on these things, but I bet you're right that it that something changed big and maybe something we haven't seen yet, um, because that seems to be the um, the modus operandi of the pandemic, right? It kind of <laughs> surprises yeah. us, even though right. we've been on two years. Um, right. But we've actually seen some of this already. I mean, we've seen the, you know, the effects of like the inequities in our society on case rates and hospitalizations and deaths in, in, in people of color. You know, we've seen Exacerbated, that. Exacerbated, right. Yes. And we saw that we even have data now that shows that, you know, the, the disparity in deaths over the past 18 months is not 
attributable only to COVID-19, but also to worsening of other conditions like heart disease and stroke. So, you know, people who already were at risk for those conditions based on their living situation and social and economic circumstances, and maybe lack of access to opportunities and health insurance, primary care, that sort of thing, having that become worse during the pandemic also widened the gap in mortality from other conditions. It seems to me that that relationship of that communication between clinicians and patient became all the more important during certainly the initial uh, pandemic, you know, the first six months, eight months, so to speak. It seems to me that that communication could have um, helped and maybe more so than it did, especially in educating uh, now about um, vaccinations, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, so communication between doctors and patients, between nurses and their patients, and communication between public health officials and their communities, really. So I think communication was really the name of the game, whether we're talking about healthcare or public health for this pandemic. And and really, um, we saw a lot of failures in communication, a lot of missteps that contributed to significant harm. And so it just really, for me, highlights the importance of us focusing on that as a not only, you know, something that's just a nice to have thing, but it's actually a critically important aspect of health care delivery and of public health. What can a clinician do right now to improve the relationship with their patient? What practical thing can they do right now to improve that relationship? Well, you know, we talked about, about how much they talk, right? <laughs> so, you know, I have a, a mnemonic that I've used and I actually mentioned this in my book. I wrote a book recently, I don't know if you know about this, called Why Are Health Disparities Everyone's Problem? So, and in that book, uh, one of the mnemonics I use is a mnemonic relate. And it's really about the fact that people need to respect the person in front of them, regardless of whether or not they like them or agree with everything they're saying. They need to um, empathize with them, put themselves in that person's shoes and imagine what it would be like to go through uh, a day in their life. They need to listen more and talk less, right? Um, They need to ask themselves, what assumptions are they making about this person and if um, if those assumptions are actually based on reality or based on some other knowledge uh, uh, or some generalization about a group of people. Um, we also want to make sure that they talk with people about their personal lives and not just their their health in particular, but also get to know people as people. And then finally, we just really want uh, doctors to engage people in decision-making about their health and their treatment. And so that's the mnemonic is relate. Hmm, That's very interesting. But essentially it is get to know them, to boil it down, get to know them. (laughs) And we know it, it can be challenging with all the demands there are for our time in healthcare. Uh, So it's not only about the individual physician, but, you know, people who are in positions of leadership or healthcare organizations have to create a setting or a context where clinicians will be able to do do their best job of connecting and relating with patients. 
before you go, I wanted to to ask you about your role on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. And, and I want to be respectful of that role and what you can and can't talk about. Does your presence on this Council of Advisors indicate that the Biden administration is clear-eyed on equity, that they see that equity is an issue and a priority? I, I think so. I mean, I think um, I think President Biden has made clear that that equity is something that's important to him and that, you know, he is concerned about social inequities that have actually led to not only economic uh, disparities, but also health disparities. So I think he's been clear about that. And he also stated in his letter to Dr. Eric Lander, who is um, his scientific advisor, his chief scientific advisor, um, one of the things he stated in his letter uh, was that he wanted this PCAST to really focus that on how we can make sure that the fruits of science and technology are shared across all Americans and that everyone benefits from the science and technology rewards that we have in our society and that we don't actually um, worsen disparities, but we actually can work to reduce and substantially reduce them. Uh, that must have been very um, encouraging to you. Um, and so what will you be working on? What can you tell us that you will be or are working on with, with this uh, council? Well, you know, we've been listening to a lot of experts um, give us updates on, you know, where the country is and what some of the most perplexing issues are that the administration is facing. Um, one of the key issues that that President Biden wants us to address is uh, what we've learned from the pandemic about what is possible for addressing uh, our public health needs of the country. What kinds of lessons can we learn about the failures that took place that will inform the way we strengthen our, our infrastructure uh, to deliver public health and you know, the bolstering of our public health workforce? Um, we are also really strongly focused on issues related to climate change. And so we are listening to a lot of experts talk about um, you know, what sort of science and technologies will be available and are available now to address climate change, how we can assure also that all communities are able to benefit from that um, and, um, and participate in that. So we're looking at that. We're also looking at our global competitiveness in, in science and technology, uh, among other things, and, and really looking at sort of the long-term fruitfulness and um, strength of health and science in our country. What do you think is the most critical thing that we as a country should be concerned about when it comes to science and technology? Where should our thoughts be there? Well, I mean, I think climate change is really an existential crisis uh, that we're facing. Um, you know, if we don't do something about climate change, we will all not be able to, you know, to survive on the planet and our, our our future generations will not be able to survive. So I think without a doubt, climate change is the number one science issue facing the country at this point. And there, and there are health implications there too, right? Because floods spread disease. There's a lot Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yep. Floods mm -hmm. spread disease. Um, people die during floods. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, there, it affects the quality of our, our air that we breathe. It affects uh, our drinking water. Um, yeah, there's so many things that are 
affected health effects of climate change. And there are inequities in health that are also magnified by climate change because we know communities that have experienced um, discrimination um, and that have been marginalized, those are communities that have greater exposures to harmful environmental conditions. The ones that have poor quality housing and that are great at risk for damage when there's been, there's some sort of hurricane or flood or tornado. Um, we know that some of our policies around protecting uh, those folks are not uh, very strong. So we really need to look at all of those factors. And I think that's a priority, um, but not too far behind again is health and health inequities because as a developed nation and a wealthiest nation in the world, our health status is not anywhere near the top. You know, we actually in some parts of our country have the same health indicators as developing countries and very low income countries. So one of the reasons why we have that is because we have these disparities between different groups within our country. And they're not bad only for the people who are in those groups or in those communities. They actually worsen health for everyone. And people don't seem to always understand that, but they cost us a lot of money. Health inequities cost us money. Um, they make our entire workforce less productive. Um, it, it, disparities lead to civic unrest and conflict and poor mental health for everyone, whether or not you actually happen to be from a community that's disparate because if you know, if you have civil unrest and crime that it, it makes everyone else have poor health as well. So it's actually, um, I think not far behind climate change to for us to address health equity. Dr. Lisa Cooper, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, it is an honor to talk to you and really, really interesting work. Keep us updated, okay? Thank you, yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Lisa Cooper, looking to the future of healthcare and to the future of us all, really. And now a bit of a chat between NCQA President Peggy O'Kane and Vice President for Public Policy and External Relations, Frank Michike. In this segment, Peggy gives her thoughts on the care model known as hospital at home. The concept of telehealth has evolved from an everyday convenience to a pandemic necessity for so many of us. As hospitals continue to deal with the waves of COVID patients flooding emergency rooms and ICUs around the country, providers, many of us are looking ways to protect one of our most vulnerable populations, the elderly. And the easiest way to do that, keep them home if you can. Can you tell us what you've seen, what you've learned about hospital at home and um Who's really innovating and, and what challenges they're identifying in the process of, of doing this groundbreaking work? Yeah, there are some wonderful people working in this field. Um, I think the person who's acknowledged to be the thought leader uh, that really kicked this whole thing off is Bruce Leff at Johns Hopkins, uh, who's a geriatrician, I believe, and um, who definitely works on use cases for the elderly. And then Al Sue, who's at Mount Sinai, um, also a geriatrician. Um, I think geriatricians have a very uh, realistic and 
uh, dim view of what happens when old people go in the hospital. And I think it comes out of that, this idea that if we could do this in the home, maybe we wouldn't have so many people that are um, coming out of the hospital, you know, with all kinds of delusions and, you know, just awful things that happen. And, and some people not even coming out of the hospital after being admitted. Um, so I think there, there are lots of opportunities, I think, in the hospital at home space to deliver care, perhaps that's better in the home. It's no simple matter, though, to me that, um, you know, A, the logistics of it, you know, if you think about, you've got a person, let's think, you know, think of a use case of a person that lives in a nice home in the suburbs and um, their wife is young enough to take care of them and, you know, uh, and what if something goes wrong and the alarms go off on the monitors, which are now in the home. Uh, and it's at rush hour, okay? So there's a logistics issue. And what kind of admissions are less likely to have that kind of a scenario? So I think it's a matter of discernment. And I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily by diagnosis. It may be by the circumstances in which the person lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if there are three generations living in a two bedroom apartment in the Bronx, it's probably not a great hospital at home scenario. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, but I, you know, if you think about clinical scenarios, like people getting um, infused with chemotherapy or people that are on um, IV antibiotics, you know, um, those have usually been causes for admission or at least outpatient treatment. Uh, there, are, there are use cases that could be um, successfully treated that way, I think. So, it's, so, I don't think it's going to be like it's not going to replace the hospital, but it may uh, reduce the amount of hospitalization in, in an institution. Um, so what's, it, what's it going to take to get it from a concept? I'm sure it's actually being implemented. I, I actually think it's got a lot of energy. You know, I was at a meeting at the National Academies again uh, talking about this, and it was very interesting because CMS is very, very interested in advancing this idea. You know, I, I think when I think about it from my um, perspective at NCQA, I think, okay, what about now if we've reduced the barriers to putting somebody in the hospital, does that mean we're going to have more unnecessary hospitalizations? There are opportunity zones prior to the hospitalization where if people really did this right and, and using these technologies right, they could prevent the hospitalization, but are they going to now have an incentive to not do it right? You know, which I think already happens in healthcare. So it's it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack, and it's I'm still in the very very early learning stages of this, um, and I hope we all kind of continue to keep a beginner's mind about this because. Um, I think there are things that could go wrong here, and we don't want to screw up the idea because we run at it um, without being thoughtful. Okay, and from a parochial uh, point of view, what's the role, if any, for NCQA in this space? I don't, I don't really know for sure, but I think we bring our population health mindset to it. Um, we bring our understanding that the right care delivered at the right time can prevent the wrong outcome. 
Um, we, you know, we bring lots of uh, agility with measurement. So, um, you know, we're looking, we're, we're kind of circling the issue, we're talking to people, and we, I don't know what our role will be, but I think there is a role for us. And um, so we're, we're having some interesting discussions trying to narrow down what that role is. Thank you, Peggy O'Kane and Frank Michike. So we know you know that NCQA is dedicated to measuring quality and improving healthcare. We approach this from a number of angles, not the least of which are our incredible accreditation programs. NCQA is pleased to announce that we've launched our Health Equity Accreditation Program. In the coming weeks on Inside Healthcare, we'll tell you a whole lot more about health equity accreditation. The program seeks to elevate and measure health equity goals, making sure there are healthcare programs that speak to all populations and, of course, cut back on those disparities. And as an accreditation program, participants demonstrate a much higher level of commitment to bridging those healthcare gaps. For more information on equity, visit our website. That's www.ncqa.com and click the health equity link on the homepage. Of course, you can search for anything on the site, our programs, webinars, HEDIS measures programs, and NCQA's 2021 health plan report cards. Do it all by going to the search box in the top right of our homepage and just type what you need. Along those lines, you can find past episodes of this podcast by typing Inside Healthcare into that search box. We started publishing episodes in 2017, and we're heading into 2022. There's plenty there to uh, inform and inspire you, so feel free to search for that. Well, that's it for Inside Healthcare for this week. Two more episodes remain in 2021. So stay tuned for those to drop every other Wednesday and tell everyone you know, your doctor, family, friends, anyone who's ever been to a doctor, they should check out this podcast. We guarantee they hear something insightful and meaningful. On behalf of our producer, Dave Smolar, and everyone else here at NCQA, I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.